0: Why is it that bad things sometimes happen to good people? Sometimes it's because we live in a badly broken world that doesn't function in the perfect way that God designed it. A tragic accident, an untimely death, those things can happen to anyone. And sometimes we experience bad things as a direct result of our own behavior because even good people can make bad decisions. Sometimes, though, an incredibly difficult event in life actually can be a display of God's mercy. Some people call this a severe mercy. It's severe because it's hard and yet it's mercy because it is an expression of God's love. And here's an example of that. At our last church there was a married couple named Eddie and Ginger. Ginger was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and Eddie was not. And Ginger prayed for Eddie and shared her faith with him, but Eddie simply wasn't interested. And then Ginger became chronically ill. And after a battle that lasted several years, Ginger died. And as Eddie watched how Ginger's faith sustained her in that illness... As he watched how the family of God came alongside Ginger and loved her and supported her and cared for her and nurtured her during that illness, Eddie saw the reality of Jesus. That was the moment when, for him, Christ became real. And very shortly after Ginger died, Eddie became a follower of Christ. Now, obviously, the loss of Ginger was incredibly painful for him, and yet it was her death that helped him to get connected to Jesus. And then he could live each day with the hope of eternity, knowing that he would see his wife again. The death of Ginger actually was the severe mercy of God in action. Because God was working to bring Eddie to Jesus. Our God is merciful. In fact, in in the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, we learn that our God delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. And that means he loves to step into your life and to mine and, and to forgive us and to draw us closer to him. And the reality is that sometimes we experience that incredible mercy of God in ways that are hard, in ways that are severe. That's what happened to Eddie and Ginger. The Bible tells us that on one memorable occasion, King David of Israel experienced the severe mercy of God. And these very painful events of his life are recorded in chapters 11 and 12 of the book of 2 Samuel. It's a lengthy story and we don't have time to work our way through all of it this morning. So I want to summarize the first part of this story. It is a saga, a heart-rending saga, a betrayal, deceit, death, but ultimately mercy. Here's how this story begins. King David is a soldier who usually leads his men into battle. On one occasion, though, he sends his men out without him. He stays at home. And one night, he goes out onto the rooftop terrace of his house to relax. He sees into a neighboring home where he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. And she's home alone because her husband Uriah is out fighting. And David stands there and he stares at this naked woman and he lets his physical desires get the best of him. He misuses his authority as king to have this woman brought to him. He makes love to her, she becomes pregnant, and then David tries to cover it up. His cover-up attempt fails. So he then arranges for Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to be placed in the most dangerous part of the line during the next battle, and Uriah is killed. And then because Bathsheba is now a widow, David marries her, and she gives birth to their son. God is not happy with David. He expects much better from the man he personally selected to be the king. So shortly after the boy is born, God sends a prophet named Nathan to confront David with his sinful behavior. Now despite his very despicable actions in this case, David has a very tender heart toward God. And when he's confronted by Nathan, Nathan's words convict him to the depths of his soul. So he acknowledges without excuse what he's done. He doesn't blame Bathsheba, he doesn't blame anyone else. He simply says, I have sinned. And we need to recognize how rare that kind of confession is. Most people, when caught, find a way to blame someone or something else. We blame our parents or our kids or our spouse or our friends. We blame our society. We blame our circumstances. And to David's great credit, he does none of those things. He simply admits, it's my fault. In response, what does God do? God forgives him. God extends mercy. He extends mercy because David is honest and David has repented. God extends mercy because that is what God delights to do. And so, as the story continues, there, we learn that God takes away David's sin, but he doesn't take away all the consequences of the sin. David is told that his family and his household will suffer a lot of discord in the future because of what he's done. And it's painful to accept. But sometimes, even after we've received God's forgiveness, our behavior leaves debris (laughs) that we still have to clean up. That's the case for David. But at the very end of this conversation with Nathan, David learns that there is one extremely painful consequence. The prophet tells him, You have shown utter contempt for the Lord. So the son born to you shall die. That's hard. David's overwhelmed. He's the one who sinned, and God's now going to take the life of this child. He doesn't want to accept this outcome. He doesn't want to accept that a child will die because of him. And that's where we pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. Sackcloth is like burlap. He spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. You know, when we're really hurting, quite often we turn away from God. Yet that's when we need him the most. David realizes he cannot run away from the problems that he's caused. He realizes he can't turn away from God in this moment, so he turns toward God and he fervently prays for mercy. And this was not some perfunctory prayer. This was prayer and fasting. This was prayer from the depths of his soul. This was continual, ongoing prayer for seven days while trying to sleep at night in itchy, scratchy sackcloth. It's fair to ask, though, why is David even doing this? Nathan already said the boy's going to die. So what's the point of praying? Here's what I think. David knows that God is incredibly merciful. God's already shown amazing mercy by forgiving David for what he's done. And so he calls upon God, hoping that God will extend mercy toward his son. And when you're broken and filled with despair, what does a prayer like that look like? What words do you use to come before God? In this case, we know. Because Psalm 51 is a prayer that David wrote down during this week of fasting. And it's a prayer that speaks to the universal problem of sin and the universal need that we all have for God's mercy. And so I want us to look at a portion of David's prayer and I'd like for us to read this aloud together and offer it as our own prayer. Read with me, please. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In moments like this, we need to be painfully honest with God. And that's what we see in David. David prays and holds nothing back and he confesses that he's to blame and that God is blameless. And he acknowledges that whatever God decides, whatever God chooses to do will be right and will be just. All David can do is admit his brokenness and express hope that God's Mercy will cover the debris of his misbehavior so that his son's life will be spared. And this extended time of prayer, pouring out his heart to God, this this week of fasting where he's mourning and expressing sorrow and asking for mercy, this acknowledgement that God truly is just. All of this prepares David to handle the news when he learns that the child is dead. Because he has fasted and prayed, he's able able to accept God's difficult decision as we see next. Continuing on in 2 Samuel verse 20, then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? Listen to this next line, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. When David confirms that his son, in fact, is dead, he he breaks his fast, and his attendants They think he's got it exactly backwards. They think he should have eaten while the child was ill and then fasted as an act of mourning after the child had died. And why is it that David did the opposite? It's because he wanted to mourn his sin and the consequences of his sin. And he wanted to plead for mercy with God. He wanted to spend time in the presence of God. And because he did so, He's able to accept the outcome. And somehow in this process, he even gets a glimpse of eternity for comfort. He knows that this boy will not come back to life. But he knows they'll be united when David dies. And so David is able to turn away from lamenting, and instead he worships. He can accept God's decision because he truly believes, despite how hard this is, he truly believes that God knows what he is doing. And that's why he could pray as we saw in Psalm 51, God you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. It doesn't all make sense, but he trusts. Now that's David, but, but what about the boy? How do we make sense of what happens to this boy? I think the only way we can make sense out of it is to see this situation from an eternal perspective, which is how God views every human life. And so I believe that this innocent child, when he died, he was immediately taken from this earth into heaven and into the very presence of God. And I believe this because as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to leave our body behind in death is to be at home with the Lord. And I believe that's what God does with this boy. And yet, even with the assurance of eternity, why let the boy die? Is God doing this just to punish David? The Scripture does not specifically say. You know, sometimes God doesn't give us all the answers we would like. and Sometimes in the Bible... He leaves it to us to wrestle with the implications of what he says to us. And in this situation, by taking the life of this child, I think that God actually is displaying his mercy. His severe mercy. Let's take a look at the final words between the prophet Nathan and David in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die." Understand the sequence of events. Nathan has confronted David with his sin, David has repented, David has confessed, Nathan has assured David that God has taken away his sin. And then after all of that, he says, now you have to face the painful consequence of this child's death. Just contemplating the death of a child is heartbreaking, it's painful. And it's logical to read this and to assume that God is doing this to to punish David. But Nathan never says that. He only says the boy will be taken because of the utter contempt that David displayed toward God by his behavior. And I think we need to ask, well, what are the implications of that? What is God up to? I think we get some answers if we start by considering what we know. We know that it's not good for any child to be conceived through adultery. But this story is so much worse. This is a story of repeated betrayal by David. It begins with, The betrayal of his soldiers, David sees Bathsheba bathing because he's at home when he should be out in battle with his men. He betrays his authority as king to get Bathsheba into his bed. He betrays Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, by his act of adultery. He betrays his authority as a military commander to get Uriah killed in battle. And through those actions and through his attempts at a cover-up, he betrays his own integrity. And at every step along the way, he betrays the God who personally made him king, the God who gave him authority and power, the Lord who expected his chosen king to represent him wisely and well. And all of this betrayal results in the birth of a child, an innocent boy, and yet the mere presence of that boy in that family would forever be a vivid reminder of every detail of that horrible sequence of events. The the boy would remind Bathsheba that by yielding to David she betrayed her husband. And that boy would remind David that he displayed in the words of Nathan utter contempt for God. What would have happened if that boy would have lived? I have no doubts that David and Bathsheba would have loved him. But when he grew up, would they tell him what happened? Or would they somehow try to keep it all secret? You know, hidden secrets like that often tear families apart. And yet, if they did tell their son the truth, how would he react when he realized the circumstances of his birth? Wouldn't he be angry with his parents? You see, based on what we know, And what I think are some logical inferences, I don't believe the future bodes well for this boy and for this family. And so I reflect back on David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. I think God actually answered that prayer just in a very different way than David expected. Obviously the pain of losing this son is great and yet I think the pain of his daily presence would be far greater. Very painful for the parents and extremely painful for that boy. Removing the child from the family spares the family from an ongoing wound. It allows the boy to immediately experience the joys of heaven. And it allows David and Bathsheba to be healed and to move forward into the next season of life. It allows them to experience God's forgiveness without a painful reminder of the past. So I think it makes sense to view this death as an act of mercy. But it only makes sense when we see it from an eternal perspective. And then obviously no child can replace another child and yet God quickly gives David and Bathsheba another son. A son that this time is the result of their marital union rather than their one night stand. And that's another act of mercy. David messed up big time. In the aftermath, he brought his broken heart and his broken spirit to God, and God responded with mercy. A a severe mercy, to be sure, but mercy nonetheless. Because our God delights, delights to show mercy to his children. And when we're able to understand the severe mercy of God I believe we then can embrace his love in a fuller, broader, richer, and deeper way. I've known several people who've experienced the severe mercy of God in their lives. At the start of the message, I mentioned Ginger, whose untimely death was used by God to bring her husband, Eddie, to faith. The man who marked me most deeply, though, was a guy named Martin. And Martin experienced the severe mercy of God and embraced it. When I first met Martin in Southern California, he was in his 30s, he was an athlete, he was in great shape. And Martin worshipped his physique. He was so proud of his condition and his looks. And he was one of the most arrogant people I ever knew. So he was a man who was full of pride, who idolized his body, but it was an empty shell. Inside he was empty. And that emptiness led him to Jesus. And as Martin got connected to Christ, he knew that God wanted to help him change, but it was a huge battle for him because his pride kept getting in the way. His pride would intrude into his words and his behavior and his relationships. He was addicted to spending way too much time working out, way too much time trying to impress women with the way he looked. For Martin... Letting God strip away that old nature was incredibly difficult. And he recognized this. He knew that his pride was hindering his ability to to live by faith and, and to become a godly man. And he really, truly, desperately wanted to change and yet he kept getting in his own way. He needed to be rescued from himself. And one day, full of despair, Martin cried out to God, and he said, Heavenly Father, if I can't get rid of my pride, I'll never be the godly man that you want me to be, the godly man I want to be. My pride is ruining my life, and I'd do anything to get rid of it. Heavenly Father, please do whatever it takes. And that was a very sincere prayer. And he meant it. And God knew it. And within just a few months, Martin was diagnosed with ALS. Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig's disease. A condition that was going to slowly, steadily destroy the body that was the focus of his pride. That was hard. That was devastating. But you know what? Martin received it as an answer to his prayer. He saw it as God's severe mercy because he knew that was what it was going to take for him to learn to trust God more than himself. The men of our church rallied around Martin. A guy named Mark got a team of people organized so that there were men available to drive Martin to church and to sporting events and to barbecues and to doctor's appointments. And they just surrounded Martin with care and friendship and love. And as we watched Martin's body slowly deteriorate, we watched him continue to wrestle with pride. He was one stubborn guy. We once were at a a weekend men's retreat and I happened to be sitting next to Martin at lunch. And Mark, Mark was feeding him because Martin couldn't get the food to his mouth anymore. And as Martin was eating, he happened to look up and looked around the dining hall and realized a whole bunch of guys were watching him. And he got very embarrassed and he slapped away Mark's hand. And then he apologized and he said, look at me. Look at me, I'm helpless. I can hardly do anything without your help. And I'm still struggling to learn how to be a humble man. And then he looked up and he said, Heavenly Father, keep going. Keep doing what you need to do, Lord. (laughs) Before Martin got ALS, he had been in training run in the Los Angeles Marathon, and his buddy Mark wanted to make that dream become a reality. And so in 1999, Mark organized a relay team of 26 guys to push Martin in his wheelchair through the marathon, one pusher for each mile of the race. The photo on the screen there shows Martin and Mark shortly after that event. A reporter for the LA Times Heard about Martin and interviewed him, and here's what Martin told that reporter. If I had to choose between my old life before ALS and my new life, I'd choose my current life. Martin's old life had been one of physical health and very little else. By his own admission, he was selfish and arrogant, and his new life was one of increasing spiritual health. His body was decaying, but his character was growing. And he told that reporter, because of ALS, I have learned what it is to be truly alive. Martin died in April of 2000. He was 40 years old. And he died one month after being pushed to his second L.A. marathon. Pushed by Mark and the team of guys. Martin's story just marks me on so many levels. He was transformed by the severe mercy of God. God. It was severe because it was hard, it was painful, but it was merciful because it drew Martin ever closer to God. And Martin was able to accept his failing body because his mind and his heart and his soul were more alive than ever. And he knew that eternity was ahead. Eternity in the presence of a merciful God who had shown him some tough love. And who had taken an, an arrogant, self-centered man and transformed him into a gracious, humble follower of Jesus. God's severe mercy is a reminder that he operates beyond the limits of human time. And Martin understood that. Ginger and Eddie understood that. King David understood that. They all trusted that God was working out His purposes for them so that they could experience His loving mercy in this life as they waited for the reality of the life to come. There's some great wisdom here for us. Whenever we go through hard times, if you're like me, the first reaction is to whine and moan and complain. Or we might somehow think that God is punishing us. But I think this story from the Bible, this story of King David and the son who died, encourages us to look deeper. And to see if perhaps in the midst of our own hard experiences, God may not be punishing us. God might actually be choosing to display His loving mercy to us. severe mercy because in good times and in bad times our God delights to show his mercy that's the promise to which we hold